seated. And so today we're going to uh, continue looking at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. So if you turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've, we're in a section of the book where we're going bit by bit, we're hitting different parts of uh, the resurrection, different aspects of it. As we go through 1 Corinthians 15, what it means for, uh, what, what it means for our faith. It's true. We looked at his truth last week. Today, we want to look at its significance. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be starting in verse 12. I encourage you to, have, to bring your own Bibles here, mark it up, circle things, write notes in it, write all those things down. Um, if you have a phone, you can use that too. But if you do need a Bible, we have them available out in our foyer. I encourage you to, to, to pick one up. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is God's word. May it his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, God, we come looking for hope. Father, a hope that is grounded in truth. And so, Father, we just do pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. That, God, you would um, attend and fix our mind on spiritual things. That, Father, that those who are um, beset with doubts... Father, that you would encourage them with answers. 
Father, for those who feel like their, their, their troubles are overcoming them, that the resurrection, the hope would uh, carry and sustain them. Father, for those who um, wonder if this service to Christ is worth it, that, Father, we'd see the, the value of the resurrection and service to Christ. Father, for those who don't believe, Father, that you would bring them to faith. Father, do that work through your holy word today. And, Father, lead and guide us as we read it, as we look at it and study it this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine for a minute this, the perfect dinner. And you're at this perfect dinner. You've eaten a nice meal, and you've saved a nice room for dessert. And it finally comes. It's your favorite. It's apple pie. Maybe you like it. Maybe you don't. But just roll with it with me for a minute. You love apple pie. It's that tangy, sugary, uh, delightful treat. And, and, and it's a thing that you need just to finish that perfect meal off. And you cut in that pie, and in that first bite, you're ready for that taste bud sensation that's just going to shoot you to the moon. And then you take the bite, and you realize something wrong. You know, those aren't apples that are in it. You don't know what it is, but something's wrong. And so you ask the waiter, what, what, what's going on? And so they tell you, oh, well, well, the kitchen, it, it, we kind of ran out of apples, and we decided to use potatoes instead. It's, it's pretty much the same consistency. We, we just decided to go with it. We didn't think you'd notice with enough sugar. Now, potato pie is not the same as apple pie, and trying to pass one off as the other is silly, um, you know, because a potato pie consists of two critical things, right? Apples and lots of sugar, right? Some of you perfectionists might say the crust is important, but for us sugar addicts, you know, the, the uh, apples and the sugar is just enough, right? Um, but without apples, you just can't have an apple pie. Well, it's the same thing with the Christian faith. Um, there are certain irreducible doctrines, certain beliefs that you can't take out of it and still have the real thing. And probably the most important of all these is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible is plain and clear that Jesus Christ was crucified on a, on a cross, that he was laid in a tomb, and that three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. He, he appeared to hundreds at the same time, confirming that he was truly alive. He ate a meal with them. And this Easter hope has been the bedrock of the Christian faith uh, since the first century. And, and that brings us into our passage today. As the gospel of Jesus Christ had spread from Jerusalem all the way to the city of Corinth, a city which was located in modern-day Greece, there was a new church, and this new church was, was flourishing there. And 1 Corinthians was written as a, as a letter to address a number of, of questions and challenges they were facing. And you can see one of them in verse 12. There were some who were doubting the resurrection. Verse 12 says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? As far as we can tell, as we look at this letter, uh, we see that some were doubting it, uh, doubting the resurrection as being a possibility at all. And what apparently people believe is that they could take this one key tenet out of the Christian faith and that it would still be the same authentic, genuine thing. Well, why, do, why do people do that, pull things out like this? 
Throughout history, people have wanted to adjust the Christian faith to make it more consistent with the, with the belief system around them, just to make it more acceptable or even palatable to others. Inside the Greek system of the first century here, uh, there was a belief that heaven was such a perfect place that how possibly could a human body ever enter into heaven? I mean, it was just too defiled. You know, there's, there's something wrong with the body which made it totally unfit to be in heaven. And, and we can maybe understand some of those things. You know, we know that we get older. Uh, we know that there's sickness that comes in. Uh, the body gets weaker over time. Uh, and our bodies have to take care of all kinds of private uh, functions, which won't be named now, that would seem inappropriate for such a, such a perfect place, Right? Well, those reasons, maybe others, it was unthinkable in Greek culture that, that this human body of ours could resurrect before it went to heaven. And so instead of adjusting their beliefs to the Christian message, what they did is they were working to adjust. Some were trying to adjust the Christian message to their beliefs. They were moving the backwards direction, trying to make it more worldly acceptable, especially in that Greek way of thinking. Maybe they thought it would spread more easily. In the end, they thought they could take out this one part and still have the Christian faith. And we could ask that question, does it work? Does it work to, to take out certain beliefs and still have something genuine? And like apple pie without apples, uh, if we pull the resurrection out, we no longer have the genuine Christian faith. Many people have tried throughout history to say that uh, the Christian faith is a moral code. It is something for uh, social transformation. It is something that makes us live more ethical lives. It is something that gives us purpose in our lives. It is something uh, that provides uh, therapeutic help to our deepest emotional hurts. And, and it can have elements of all those things, but it's much more than that. If we try to say that the Christian faith is primarily about those things, it's like trying to make uh, apple pie with potatoes. No, no, the Christian faith is grounded in the historical fact of the resurrection. We talked about that as we looked through uh, verses 1 through 11. Now, sadly, what happens is that people take out these key things uh, to take it more attractive. Uh, it's that attractiveness that they actually lose. It loses the substance that makes all those things that we talked about earlier possible. It doesn't become more attractive. It becomes less. And we can look at churches around our nation and our world and to see that those who have taken out you know, these core uh, beliefs, core doctrines, they've actually declined in numbers. They've actually seen growing immorality, and many have even had to shut their doors. You know, what is attractive? It is the full and true Christian doctrine. It may not be attractive to everybody, you know, but to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, there, there's nothing that is more beautiful. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter then of 1 Corinthians, and he's reminding them that they can't just simply pick and choose what they want and drop what they, what they don't uh, want from the Christian faith. If they're going to walk with Jesus, if they're going to grow as disciples, there's an embracing of this whole message that they've been given. And so today we want to look at um, you know, some of the reasons why the resurrection is essential for the Christian faith. Maybe even coming here today, you might ask, you know, does the resurrection really matter? Does it really matter? We're going to see is three reasons why it does matter. It matters immensely. That's what he spends this section answering. So the first thing that we see in our passage is the resurrection is really at the heart of faith. See that in verses 12 through, the, 12 through 19. 
And so again, the first few verses, the Apostle Paul is saying is that you just can't pull this one thing out and have genuine Christian faith. Have you ever played Jenga? You know, Jenga is, you know, where you have those little wooden blocks and you stack them up together in a, this perfect tower, right? And, the, and the, the game is played by pulling out one of the, the blocks lower in the tower and you put it on top, right? And, and you lose the game, what, if, if you're the one who pulls it out and the whole thing falls over. Well, you know, they're pulling out one of these bottom blocks and um, one of the things that causes the whole thing to fall over. We can see that in verse 13 where he says this, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Point is that if it's impossible that anyone would ever resurrect from the dead, then not even Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. But if you look back at verses 1 through 11, we see plainly that there is an enormous amount of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about that as we looked through those passages a couple weeks ago. And we know that if he can raise from the dead, because we have this evidence, we know that it's also possible for others to rise from the dead. It really shows us that nothing is impossible for God. But let's say, for the sake of the argument, that the resurrection is really impossible. That's really where Paul goes in this paragraph. Let's just say for the argument it really is impossible. And what are you left with at that point? It's a pointless faith. I mean, this uh, whole paragraph shows us certain realities if the resurrection didn't happen. Notice verse 14. It says it's all vanity. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You know, two vain and pointless things, preaching and faith. You know, if we study this passage, uh, the one thing that we want to do is dispel any notion that, that if the Christian faith is not historical, that it can be good. We dispel any notion that if the Christian faith is not historical, that it can be good. If the Christian faith is not historically grounded in the actual resurrection of Jesus, it is vain and it is useless. More than that, it would even be destructive in pushing people towards false hopes. It would be a lie that has consumed billions of people. That's the point that the passage makes. And in this way, it really ups the ante for us, Right? I mean, we cannot just look at our faith as a cozy, uh, comfortable little thing that gives our life meaning. No, it is something that is grounded in, historical, uh, in an historical event. It demonstrates the power of God. It demonstrates the consequences of sin. It shows the wonders of resurrection. And it calls and demands for our full faith and surrender. It matters greatly whether it, mattered, whether it happened or not. So we're going to look at some of the reasons because he gives them um, in this passage. First thing is we look at verses 15 and 16. Um, we see if the resurrection is not true, it makes pastors into liars. He says, we, the apostle Paul and the other apostles, he said, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, the saying that we're liars. I mean, sometimes, you know, I know sometimes I can kill a conversation, maybe on an airplane or wherever, just by saying, somebody says, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Like, 
uh, you know, I mean, so there can be distress that goes there, and you know, or maybe sometimes people just don't know the thing to say. Maybe they've had a bad experience with that. I did look up the most trusted professions in our country right now, and nurses, congratulations. You are the number one trusted profession in our nation. Um, doctors, you're right up there too. Grade school teachers, you're wonderful. Pharmacists, police officers are trusted. Pastors are down at number six, but with only 39% of people trusting their pastors. And we might be able to think of some reasons, whether it's skepticism or doubt, or they've seen people misuse uh, their position or, uh, or, or role for, for various things. It does make me wonder if we just focus on preaching the gospel, you know, how much that might change. But here, the Apostle Paul says um, that, you know, if the dead are not raised, then we have been misrepresenting God. Um, they, they basically shouldn't believe him either. They shouldn't be listening to him if it's impossible that the resurrection happened. You know, pastors through the ages, they've, they've banked uh, not only their message, but also their eternal destiny on the resurrection of Christ. We don't just preach it, uh, we believe it, we, we live it, we, we love it. It's the foundation of our hope, as, as well as our message. We're, we're preaching of what has consumed us and consumed our lives. Pastors would be misrepresenting God if they said that Jesus was raised from the dead when he actually wasn't. Here you have the Apostle Paul coming from a very theistic viewpoint, and, and he knew that he would one day stand before the judgment seat of God. And, and as James 3.1 says, that anyone who teaches will come under a stricter judgment. So it's a fearful thing for a pastor to misrepresent God, knowing that there's going to be a judgment that's to come. So how do we know? Um, well, how, how certain was Paul that he wasn't telling a lie? Well, he saw Jesus himself with his own eyes. We looked last week. At the hundreds of people, or two weeks ago, the hundreds of people had seen him. He's willing to die for, for this conviction. The other apostles were willing to die for it as well. There was enormous evidence, and, and we looked at who, who would die for a lie. You know, people don't die for known lies. But why, why did they die announcing the resurrection? Because they knew it was true. It was something they saw with their own eyes. But let's look at the second issue. If the resurrection is not true, then the problem of sin remains. The problem of sin remains. We see this in verses 17 and 18. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So what happens then if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Well, the first thing is that we might doubt what he said was really real. You know, the words of Jesus and the authority of what he said you know, they are, they are sealed. The truthfulness of those are sealed in his resurrection from the dead. You know, his resurrection authenticates those words. It puts authority in it. Would, you know, wouldn't it do that? Somebody said something and then they rose from the dead. That's amazing. But second, if the resurrection is not true, then we would also doubt that our sins were actually paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, he, some of his last words were, it is finished. And so in that death and the resurrection, he paid the penalty of sin for all of his people. Whoever believes in him has their sins forgiven. Well, if he didn't rise again from the dead, that we can never know whether his sacrifice was really accepted by God or not. We'd not know if our sins were actually paid for. Jesus Christ is still in the grave. He's still paying the penalty of sin. And if the sin isn't fully paid for, then you're going to owe it when you die. You would still be in your sin. You would still be under God's judgment and the condemnation of hell. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, there is no answer for sin in this world. And there's no way to have it forgiven. 
But if he is raised, we have a confidence. We have a confidence that indeed, as we believe in him, our sins are forgiven. They are taken away. They have fully been paid for. A third issue, that if the resurrection is not true, is that we have wasted life. Every person who's believed in Jesus Christ, in this case, would have wasted his time. You look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, I mean, look at that passage, verse 19. Christian faith is not a matter of ethics, feeling good about ourselves, or getting therapy. It is a historical uh, announcement, and that history is not true, it's wasted. See, Paul had given up everything for Christ. You could think about his, his resume that he had before he became an apostle. You know, he was born into uh, one of the elite families of his day. He was well-educated. He was given positions of, of honor and responsibility. He was, among, uh, the Jew, he, he was a Jew among Jews, Hebrew among Hebrews, among the up-and-coming of the Jewish nation. And then he saw Jesus, and he laid all those things aside in order to follow him. He gave up that resume in order to be a, a disciple. And here he's saying plainly that if this commitment does not go to the next life, he says, don't honor me. He says, pity me. Don't honor me, pity me. He'd gambled his whole life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection, he was able and willing to give up everything. And if the resurrection is not true, then this decision is wrong. He lost everything and he gained nothing. Why wouldn't he have just lived it up, enjoyed life in the world, made money, kept his honor? Why wouldn't he have just spent his time in luxury and in pleasure-seeking? Why would he have invested his time in public worship, self-sacrifice, suffering, and loving others? And this is meant as a challenge to us. People like to say, well, even if Christianity is not true, at least you lived a good life. At least you were good to other people. You had a good family. You lived with purpose. You had a church and friends. But you see how verse 19 doesn't give us room for that? I mean, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, that we are fools to be pitied. Now, the searching question here is this. Do we live our lives in a way that if the resurrection was false, that we would be pitied? Can you say with your life that it would have been wasted? Are you living, really living as if Jesus Christ raised from the dead? Are you living as if your resurrected Savior is able to command and to direct your life with that authority? You know, we, don't, we see no half measures here with Paul. You know, do, do we have half measures in following Jesus? Are we holding back in obedience? Are we walking with Christ by faith in this resurrection that's to come? If the resurrection happened, you, you can bank your life on that. It did happen, and you can. It's at the heart of faith. The resurrection is the heart of faith. The second thing we want to look at is the resurrection brings hope. See this in verse, starting verse 20. So Paul's going to get on the implications then of the resurrection for us. You can look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. You notice he's turning away from this hypothetical, you know, what if he didn't? Let's look at that. Well, now he's saying he has. Now let's look at what that means for us now. So look at a couple things in verse 20. The first thing you notice that he talks about falling asleep. You know, that's a reference for death. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, it's a reminder that death is temporary. It's like falling asleep. There's an expectation that we'll wake up again. 
in the presence of God. He also talks about being first fruits. He mentioned this the first time, a few times, so I want to mention that uh, briefly here. Uh, a first fruit as a reference to farming, when a farmer would lay out a field, uh, the first fruits were those first ripened vegetables uh, that would indicate that the whole crop was coming in the future. The first fruits were that, that guarantee that, that more goods were coming. And the Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the first of many who will eventually be resurrected. He's the promise that everyone who believes in him will have the same experience that he's had. They also will be raised back to life, uh, just like he was, to live in a glorified body. That's more than he's the first one, though. Because we also see that he's the one who makes resurrection possible. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is one of these passages that describes the great um, a th- a theological concept called federal headship. You know, it shows the reason why all men die, and it shows the reason why um, anybody would have eternal life. It's, it's clear that the reason that death came into the world was through one man. It came through Adam. And we, um, you might know his story. He was placed inside of the garden. He was told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did, he would be under the consequence of death. And so when he chose to eat, death entered the world. But it didn't just enter for him, it entered for all of his descendants. Why do we die? Because Adam ate. So we see he is the federal head of the human race. He made the decision that every person after him is affected by um, in the human race except for one, except for Jesus. It's because everyone who is under Adam will die. And all are under Adam. But there is someone else who came in to bring resurrection life. We see that also in verse 21 22. That's what Jesus did. He brought resurrection from the dead. He brought life from the dead. He's the first one to do that, right? And so Jesus becomes the leader of his people, or, or he becomes what's called the federal head of all those who believe in him. Everyone who is under Jesus will live forever. So this is an idea that's not just unique to 1 Corinthians, you know, spoken of in other parts of the Bible. We can look at Romans 5, 18 and 19, which says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Romans 6 eight goes on to say that if we want the benefits of Jesus' resurrection, we need to believe in him, because that puts us under him. It puts us in Christ. And so the big question that 1 Corinthians and even Romans 5 asks us is this, is who represents you? Who represents you? Are you represented by Adam because you're born into the human race? If so, that means that death has the final say in your life. Or are you represented by Jesus Christ? Meaning that you will live forever. If you've not believed in Christ uh, and joined to him by faith, then you are still in Adam and you are destined to die and to enter into judgment. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you would have the promise of forgiveness. You would have that promise of eternal life. And, and if you haven't done so yet, uh, do so. Believe in him. And if you've trusted in him, you know that being in him, you're under his headship. And you know you get his benefits. If you look at verses 23 through 26 then, 
we see just how Jesus will have that victory and how all of his people will participate in it. Look, verse 23, it says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So we know that Jesus is raised, right? He's the first fruits. And then when he returns, all those who are in Christ, all those who belong to him, or under that federal headship, they also will raise from the dead. And then he says, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God, uh, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, you see this victory of Jesus on behalf of the Father. You see him crushing every rule that is raised up against him. He destroys these bits of unrighteousness. He destroys this evil. He destroys the sin, the darkness out of the world. You can see that in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, which talks about his rule of the heavenly realms. So those who want to set themselves up against God, they come under the rule of Christ. And then we see who Jesus is doing this for. He's doing it for his father. At the end, he hands it over to his father as this gift. He brings his people by faith into that kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Even Jesus, in building this kingdom, is drawing us into himself to be a gift to the Father. You know, that ultimate gift, that great gift at the wedding feast of the Lamb that he presents his Father as his mission is accomplished. So if oppression bothers you, if injustice bothers you, if you find that you are subject to those who hurt you or even demonic accusation, you have hope. You know, the rulers who persecute the church of Christ and they're against him, it's, it's clear they don't win. They come under the subjection of Christ. It says he will ru- destroy every rule and every authority and power. That's the kingdom that Christ is building. It's one that's good. It's for the honor and glory of his father. And those who reject the rule of God will be overcome in the end. And we pray that that happens through repentance. We pray that it happens through faith. We pray that every rebel heart will be conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God that is presented and offered in that. But if they do not, they'll be conquered in the judgment of Christ. It's the poor of spirit who enter into the kingdom of God. The great narrative of history is that the earthly leaders come and to conquer and to oppress others and to suppress faith in Christ. But Jesus Christ came to love and to build a righteous and a good kingdom. It's a place of joy, as we can read in Revelation 21.4, when we're reminded this, that in glory he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The resurrection brings that hope. Resurrection brings hope. Well, the third thing we want to look at today is the resurrection changes how we live. If it's true, we believe it, it's going to change the way that we live, the, the decisions we make. And so the Apostle Paul, in verse 29, um, you know, he, he draws out the point that if this is not true, then nothing about the Christian faith really matters. But if it is, and as it is, makes a huge difference in how we live. So we're going to look at four areas on how it changes the way we live. The first thing is that brings us to faith. We see this, especially in verse 29, where we read this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? You know, and throughout this book, we've found doozy of, of 
sentences and verses to understand. Well, what does he mean by this? This is one of the most confusing passages in the whole Bible. I've heard there's some 40 different interpretations of that, and I'm going to spare you going through all the different interpretations. And, um, you know, so getting through it, this is the best sense that I have of a passage like that. Now, one thing that's helpful in taking a passage like this is to realize what it doesn't mean. And one thing that we know it doesn't mean is that we can actually, by something we do, gain salvation for somebody else. You know, that's something that only Jesus Christ can do, and it's something that, all, that they can only receive by faith, right? And so we know that there is a limit that is there on it. You know, we know that um, it's not saying that, ain't, that we can actually accomplish others' salvation. The Bible never says that uh, from the beginning to the end. Now, the best explanation that I have is that when the Apostle Paul says the dead, he's referring to our decaying human bodies. He's, if that's correct, uh, the real question uh, here brings up that question of us, why would anybody be baptized, right? Um, if, if, Je- if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, why would anyone be baptized with the hope of salvation for themselves? Why does anyone receive the sign of baptism? when they're just going to die anyway. Why would we believe if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? But by faith, we respond by believing Jesus Christ and obeying his commands. You know, the first of which of those is is baptism. You know, baptism signifying our union with Christ. And that when we receive him by faith, that very thing that's signified becomes ours. But if he's not raised, then baptism is meaningless, and there's no reason to believe or even to be identified as a Christian. If he is not resurrected, there is no difference between him and any other philosopher or dead prophet. But if he is, then we need to identify with it, to be baptized, to, to, to take on that sign. We need to believe. It's our hope, and we, we don't want to live without that hope. It, it leads us to faith, to, to committing to it, even to be baptized in his name. You know, we don't think about it much in our country, but in many countries, and I'll tell a story in a minute, you know, baptism is a, is a death sentence for some people to put on the name of Christ, you know, to be identified with him in that way. And he's saying, if he's raised, even if that's the result, it's worth it. The resurrection encourages us to believe. Verses 30 through 32 gives us a, a, a second implication of how the gospel, how the resurrection changes lives. Because... It also causes us to live for others, even if it means we have to choose suffering. Paul never would have chosen suffering if he didn't believe Jesus was raised. I mean, it would have been one of those foolish things to do. You can look at how he talks about his life. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know, if you think about his life and you think about the things that he suffered in order to make Jesus known, um, you see, again, you see his conviction. He knew it was true that the, that the resurrection happened. You can look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27 and some of the things that he did. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. And then he describes this love, this, 
that he showed the Corinthian church. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drifted at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. Now, if you had one of those things, you'd probably talk about it for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> you know, here he has this list. And, and I love this, because it shows his love for, uh, for, for the church. He's willing to do whatever it takes to tell him about Jesus. All those things that are there. He's like that mother, you know, who's, who's you know, raise her, her children, and then she sees some scoundrel trying to lead them another way, and, and you know, she wants to say to him, you know, don't you know what I've done for you? I, I gave you life. I nursed you. I fed you. I stayed up with you at night when you were sick. Um, you know, I covered your boo-boos. You know, I went with you to the soccer games. I went, went with you to all these things, and now you're listening to these other people? You know, don't you know the love that I have for you? You know, that's the love that he shows in that. Why, why would you live courageously for Christ like this? Why would you take these steps of bold love? What but the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Right? And he says, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, if this life is all we have, then just live it up. That's what the hedonists do. Might as well. But if he is alive, if you know you have a life after this, and what you do continues on in the next, you know it's far better to pursue Christ. Suffering now is nothing in light of eternity. And he enters into it willingly. The third thing we see is the resurrection gives meaning to life. If the only thing that follows this life is death, then nothing but emptiness um, is to come. And then maybe we just relax. Just give in to the despair of the nothingness that's ahead. That's what our world is doing. If nothing is in the future anyway, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, he says. But if Jesus Christ is raised, there is proof of life in the future, and there is proof that you are built for a deeper relationship with God in eternity. Will your life have meaning? It does, when you remember that you were built for eternity. And fourth, the resurrection leads us to choose what is good. Look at verses 33 and 34. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So apparently, the Corinthians were turning away from the resurrection in the same time that they were also turning away from good morals and right behavior. You know, that's the way that it works. You know, we give up good doctrine. We give up that worshiping together as the body of Christ. It tends to happen that, that the, the people see a moral decline. Can even see it um, around us, our community, nation, the world. You know, people think that they can make Christ more relevant by taking some of these doctrinal things out. But as we take him our own way, we give away the bank as, as, as we do that. So the resurrection reminds of that accountability in the future. It reminds us that we want to be influenced by the people who most point us towards God. You know, who are the five people that you spend the most time with? And you're becoming more like them. Do they point you to God or do they point you to the world? You know, that discovery may do more than anything else to show why your life is going the way that it is. You know, it's the importance of Christian friends. It's the importance of our youth groups. It's the importance of our care groups, even of our open houses this summer. Making Christian friends who, who direct us towards Christ. I was thinking of this question recently when I preached at a high school graduation. But it was the question of why the Christian faith grew 
early in this connection with the resurrection. You know, there was a conviction, surely, uh, in the resurrection, and that spurred on the growth of the early church. And it is a wonder to see how the early church grew. I mean, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, there were some 120 people who were gathered in a room, right? Um, By AD 150, you know, there is about 40,000 believers. You know, that's a uh, 3,333% growth. By AD 50, that's 50 years later, there, were, there was another 500% growth. There was 218,000 Christians. By AD 20, it said that there was 1.17 million Christians. Uh, again, over 500% growth. You know, I mean, how do you explain that? And one of the reasons was their courage. You know, their courage and their faith and their courage and their love. And that was a courage that was inspired by the hope of resurrection. All of this growth it happened under the Roman Empire. But the Romans never really understood it. And as the Christian faith grew, they continued to persecute it more. Um, in fact, Christians were put to death. And even then, when those uh, uh, oppositions are hurled to the church, uh, the Romans couldn't stop it. And why? You know, I think the hope of the resurrection is, is core there. You know, one of the men who gave his life to Jesus Christ was named Justin Martyr. Pastor Doug's been working through some of the, the, the people of the past in our Sunday school class. You know, Justin Martyr obviously give, gets his latter name for the death that he died at the hands of the Roman government. Um, you consider his courage. A faithful uh, teacher of the Christian faith, his influence grew. He was condemned for his faith, and he was given a chance to renounce his faith in Christ and to worship at the state-sanctioned religion, but he refused. And instead he said, let there come upon me fire and cross, struggles with wild beasts, cutting and tearing asunder, racking with bones, mangling of limbs, crushing my whole body, cruel torches of the devil, if so I may attain to Christ. Now he was beheaded, but he achieved his goal. He gained Christ by faith. Why? Why that courage? The resurrection. You know, no, the Romans wouldn't understand why Christians would choose death over renouncing their faith. That's because they were all about this life. That's what happens to us when we lose that hope in the resurrection. They weren't sure about the life in the next world. They didn't understand Christianity. Another martyr was a young mother named Perpetua. She was born around 18, uh, I'm sorry, 182 AD. She was raised in upper class of society, but yet when she was 21 years old, she was uh, arrested and she was preparing to be baptized. Again, baptism was significant. Her father did not approve of her faith. He believed that she brought the family dishonor. He begged her to recant so she wouldn't be killed. Now, back then, execution, wouldn't, execution would often happen in open arenas that spectators could observe, and they would send in a wild beasts. She was injured and finally killed with a sword. Now, did she waste her life? Did this young mother uh, give up on life and our children? Or, or did she, in the words of Augustine, die as a hero? What about Justin Martyr, hero or a fool? Well, if the resurrection is true, then they acted heroically in their faith. As Jim Elliott said, that he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, if we're going to see growth in our lives, in our community, in our nation, in the world, God will call us to a similar conviction of this resurrection. One that, you know, a faith that we're really willing to live for because we know the hope in it. C.T. Studd once said something that impressed me uh, so much I hung the statement on a wall of my house. Our important reminder, he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, it's a reminder for us that our faith will continue past this life, 
that this world is not our home. Cliches about heaven, uh, they don't make courageous people. But conviction does. Conviction grounded in this historical event. So you can say these, uh, these things, in all these things we've talked about, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It matters for your hope. It matters for the way that you live. And the question for us today is, are we living as if the resurrection is true? That we'll live with him forever in such a way that we'll live for him today. That's the challenge before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this resurrection hope. God, though one man brought death into this world, and we've experienced the consequence of that in the people we've known, the decay of our own body, and even our own uh, future. Father, another man brought life. Jesus brought life. Help us to live like that is true. Help us to believe in that. Father, help us to, uh, to live in such a way, God, that we're able to give all that we have today. Father, knowing that there is a future glory for those who trust in you. The resurrection matters, Father. And thank you for that great hope and the way it changes us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, stand